0: This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com/author Chris Lester. You’re listening to the Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 146. Hi there everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 4 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, Go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detective Catherine Catane has been on administrative leave for more than a month. After shooting a vampire's thrall in the line of duty, Kate has been cleared of any wrongdoing, but she can't return to work until she's cleared by the staff psychologist, Dr. Jared Tamlin. Jared is convinced that Kate is stonewalling in her therapy unwilling to deal with the fact that she is suffering trauma from taking a human life. Jared correctly guesses that Kate is having flashbacks, but when he raises the question to Kate, she is enraged, thinking that someone must be spying on her for the meddlesome shrink. Jared tells her that he expects to see her again at the same time next week, and hopefully then they can talk honestly about her symptoms. Kate shoots back. We'll see about that. Meanwhile, homicide detective Michael Pirelli is dealing with the aftermath of his most recent crime scene. Together with his senior partner, Detective Bentley, Michael examined the body of a homeless man who had been found in a street-level alley. At first, it appeared that the man had died of an overdose, but upon examining him more closely, they found two puncture wounds over the man's carotid artery, and they saw that his skin was ashen pale, as if he had been drained of blood. Detective Bentley calls off any further examination of the crime scene. The man was obviously the target of a vampire attack, and vampires are the Lightbringer's territory. Michael has deep reservations about closing the case after so little investigation, but homicide is strapped for resources and needs to clear as many cases as they can. Bentley warns Michael not to go looking for big, flashy cases to build his reputation in the precinct. That kind of grandstanding does nothing but make enemies. And now, here's Chapter 4. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 4 Sergeant Hawkins announced himself by thumping a meaty hand onto Michael's shoulder. After seven months in homicide, Michael barely even twitched. Mr. Pirelli, Hawkins drawled, sounding entirely too cheerful for this early in the morning. How are you today, son? Ready to do some legwork? Michael looked up from the report he was writing on the dough in the alley. The sergeant was a pudgy beaver theriamorph whose plush fur made him look even larger than he actually was. As cuddly as he looked, though, that smile usually meant trouble. So did the stack of folders in his other hand. Still working my report from yesterday, actually, Michael said, gesturing toward the screen with his chin. The autopsy's not back yet, and I've got an inquiry out with narcotics to see if we can catch our dough on any priors. The beaver morph's smile sharpened. Now, that's funny, because I was sure old Bentley told me that was an open and shut Lightbringer file. How long does it take to fill out one of those transfer forms, Pirelli? About 30 minutes? Michael felt a sick little feeling growing in the pit of his stomach. More or less. Good. Hawkins plopped the pile of folders down on Michael's lap. Finish that up, and you can start running these down right after lunch. He gave Michael a jaunty, two-fingered salute. Then ambled away across the bullpen. Michael sighed, saved his work on the report, and started looking through the folders. Why in the fourth hell are we still using paper for these anyway? There were glaciers that changed faster than imperial bureaucracy. The new cases were uninspiring a stabbing in a dusk level bar, a skimmerjacking that turned ugly, a third level housewife who shot a burglar. None of them would require much in the way of detective work. Michael flipped the folders shut again and slid them into a stack. After a long moment's thought, he gathered up the files and went to the lieutenant's office. L.T. Richards was on the phone. He held up one finger to Michael, who nodded, and then turned his back to the window. Michael leaned back against a nearby cubicle wall and fussed with the folders, Eventually, Richards rang off and gestured for Michael to come in. A slim man with dark brown skin, tightly curled hair, and prominent eyes, Richards always wore a pinched expression that suggested he was on the verge of a migraine. He nodded solemnly to Michael as the younger man entered his office. What can I do for you, Perilli? Richards's voice came out as it always did, even and steady, almost devoid of inflection. His broad mouth twitched up briefly at the corners, an aborted attempt at a smile. Michael settled into a parade rest. LT, would you say I've been doing good work since I got here? Richard spread his hands and made a single, slow nod. You're still learning, Corporal, but I have no complaints. The captain was right about your potential. Why do you ask? Michael held up the stack of folders. Because it seems like I keep getting stuck with weak tea, sir. Look at this batch that Hawkins just gave me. Richards briefly scanned through the files. Well, you should be able to clear these quickly enough. That's my point, sir, Michael said, trying hard to keep the frustration out of his voice. Every time we pull an interesting case, Sergeant Bentley find a way to shuffle it off my desk as soon as possible. Instead, I'm spending all my time on files like that. Richard said, "It was almost a laugh, but it didn't quite have enough force behind it. Are we boring you, Pirelli? Barroom brawls and domestic squabbles aren't worthy of your vast intellect." Michael winced. "I didn't mean it like that, sir. I just want to make sure I'm not being coddled. I came here to do real police work. I think I'm ready to pull my weight." Richard slid the files together into a neat stack. I understand completely, but I'm going to let you in on a secret, Pirelli. These are real police work. Most homicides in the big city are entirely unmysterious, and the rest are an enormous pain in the ass. If a case isn't solved within 72 hours, it probably isn't going to be. That's why Hawkins works to take everything he can off your plates. He's conserving our resources for those few cases that matter. Michael thought about the dead junkie in the alley, And who decides which ones matter, sir? Richards attempted another smile. It went about as well as the first time. People far above our pay grades. He proffered the files to Michael. Look on the bright side, Pirelli. This weak tea is giving you a high clearance rate. That can only do good things for your career. Michael took back the files. And if a serious case comes in when it's my turn, you promise I'll get a chance at it? Richards gave another slow nod. You have my personal guarantee. He saluted Michael, dismissing him. Back at his computer, Michael opened up the form to request transfer of the John Doe file to the Lightbringers. He was nearly finished with it when an email notification popped up. The medical examiner's office was finished with the preliminary report on the Doe. Curious, Michael opened the file and scanned through it. He was somewhat disappointed to find that the report had not come from Dr. Drowling, the head M.E., but from one of her daytime assistants. As Bentley had said, the examiner had quickly determined that the man had died from exsanguination. A vampire item. The end. With a sigh of resignation, Michael packaged up his file with the autopsy report and sent them off to Lothanasi headquarters. Within a few days, he was sure, a Lightbringer patrol in that sector would dust a feral vamp or two. Maybe not the right vamps, but dead monsters were dead monsters, and it wasn't like anyone was keeping score, right? He opened the first file and got to work. Kate stormed through the precinct house, across the bullpen and into the Magic Affairs office. She slammed the door behind her, crossed to her desk, and flumped back onto her chair, letting out a breath she hadn't realized she'd been holding. Her desk was uncharacteristically bare and tidy, with only her office computer, desk phone, and nameplate. The cases she'd been working on before her leave had all been finished up by her partner, and new Magic Affairs cases were being shuffled off to other sections, or the adjacent precincts. She looked across at David's desk, facing hers in the narrow confines of their little office. His desk was always tidy, but now it was as bare as hers. Kate felt a sudden ache in her chest. After a moment's thought, she pressed the power button on her computer. Once it started up, she launched the vidchat program and placed a call. She waited in silence for two minutes while the chat program sent out its request. At last, the program chirruped, and the video window opened, revealing a handsome elf with tanned skin, long black hair, and striking purple eyes. He leaned into the camera pickup and grinned. Hello, Catherine, he said. Kate smiled. Hey, David, how's the weather in Telvar? Hot and humid, as always. The recycled air in the mirror suit starts to feel like a blessing after a while. He leaned back in his chair, revealing that he wore a light, sleeveless white tunic with a broad v-neck. He made it look good. I'm glad you caught me. We're heading back out to the rift tomorrow. I expect us to be out of contact for about two weeks. I'm glad I caught you too, Kate said. It's not the same here without you, partner. David's face brightened. Are you back on the job then? Kate waggled her hand. Not just yet, but I'm working on it. How's things on your end? It's been an incredible experience, David said. The Rift Zone is everything Project Lightpath said it was and more, and our hosts have been entirely gracious. Kate nodded. Are the treaty negotiations going well? Reasonably so, yes, considering that the Tilvari need a Biomancer on hand to even speak to the Majestrix's people. I feel immensely privileged that she chose me for the role. Kate shrugged. Well, you know the magic, and you're one of the few people in Metamor the Telvari think they can trust. True, David admitted. The wounds between Telvar and the Empire run deep. They won't be healed quickly. But I am sanguine about our chances of getting an acceptable treaty in the next few weeks. Good. Kate leaned her chin on her hand and just looked at her friend, his shifting image flickering slightly back and forth on the intercontinental connection. Well, stay safe out there and get back soon. I miss you. And I you. David cocked his head and looked at her closely, his long ears pricking forward. Is everything all right with you? Kate's lip quivered just a little before she stopped it. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just tired. Talk to you soon, okay? David nodded gravely. As soon as I can. Be well, Catherine you too. Kate pressed the button to end the call, and David's image winked out. Kate put the computer to sleep and sat back in her chair again, tucking her legs up to her chest. She stared at the wall and thought about nothing. Sometime later, a knock sounded at the door. Yeah, Kate said, tonelessly. The door opened, and Captain Joe Montgomery walked in, Kate didn't look, but she'd recognize his scent anywhere. Not many people smelled like a wolverine, not even in Metamore City. "'Hey, Cap,' she said. The captain came up silently until Kate could see him in her peripheral vision. The stocky theriomorph had his suit jacket off and his shirt sleeves rolled up past the elbows, exposing the thick brown fur on his arms." Heavy white claws flexed and extended against a pair of coffee mugs. He offered one silently to Kate, and she took it gratefully. She took a sip, black as it should be. She wasn't surprised that he knew. He settled his bulk into David's chair, across the two-facing desks, and they drank for a time in silence. I got a call from your mother last Sunday, Montgomery said at last. Said you hadn't called them in a while. Wanted to know how you were doing. Kate hid behind her cup of coffee. What did you tell her? At the time, I said you were doing as well as could be expected, the captain said. He paused, considering his cup for a moment. Of course, that was before I heard that you crashed your swoop last night. Kate looked up in alarm. How did you hear about that? Montgomery raised furry brows at her. You're not the only eyes I have on the street, Lieutenant. Kill Mama Kill has a reputation. Word gets around. Kate closed a fist and slowly thumped it against her armrest. Great. And then, of course, there's the call I got from Dr. Tamlin five minutes ago, Montgomery said. (sighs) Kate said, I don't think I can stand another session with him. He hasn't done anything useful. Just sits there asking all these stupid questions. The corner of Montgomery's muzzle twitched. Have you ever had therapy before, Lieutenant? No, never needed it before. Don't think I need it now, either. She put her feet down and leaned forward in an imploring posture. Cap, please, you gotta get me out of this. I don't need to talk to a shrink. I need to be out there doing the work, getting my life back to normal. She huffed a laugh. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe I really will go crazy. The captain sighed. He set his mug down, leaned forward, and took her hand in his. The leathery pads on his palms felt rough against her skin. I understand your frustration, he said. The first time I got referred for FFDE, they put me in counseling for three months. I hated it. This was after your f- after your mother's first husband was killed. Jacob was my partner, and I wasn't handling it well. Kate nodded. She'd heard this story before, how her biological father, Jacob, had been shot by a street thug after helping to take down some kind of major crime ring. Fearing that the criminal's revenge was not yet finished, Montgomery and his wife had helped get Kate's mother, Lisa, and the two-month-old Kate out of Metamore City. They moved into a quiet suburban neighborhood near Allentown, a three-hour tube ride from the city, where they stayed with Mrs. Montgomery's parents. Kate's earliest memories were of her and her mother in that white two-story house with the garden and the tire swing. When Kate was three years old, Lisa had married Sam Catane, who adopted Kate and became the only father she had ever known, and as far as Kate was concerned, the only one who mattered. But they had stayed close to the Montgomerys and when Kate had decided to join MCPD, the captain had taken it on himself to look after her. I didn't think I needed help, Montgomery continued. I just wanted to be back out there, getting the bad guys. He looked down at the floor and flexed his claws again. Then the nightmare started. The cold sweats at the sound of gunfire. The panic attacks, though I didn't know what they were at the time. He smiled ruefully thought i was having a heart attack kate was interested in spite of herself though she couldn't see what any of this had to do with her how did they help you they didn't at first i thought it was a waste of time and i didn't want to talk to some head shrinker about my feelings he sneered the word then rolled his eyes in self-deprecation but they wouldn't let me quit so i kept going and the shrink kept asking stupid questions Until one day, the questions weren't stupid anymore, and I found myself talking about things. Things I hadn't thought about in years. Or decades, even. He looked up at her, dark eyes intent. It all felt like a waste of time, until the day it wasn't. And then it was exactly what I needed. Kate shifted uncomfortably in her chair. That's great. I'm glad it helped you, Cap. and just... Don't feel like our situations are all that much alike. I mean, your partner died. That's huge trauma. God, if something ever happened to David, I don't know what I'd do. She pushed that haunting image out of her mind. But I didn't lose anybody. And nobody did anything to me either. But Tamlin's so focused on seeing something fucked up inside me that he can't see what I really need. Tamlin's the best police psychologist we have, Montgomery said. His rehabilitation record is damn near perfect. I'm inclined to trust his judgment on this. Kate wilted. The cap? Montgomery held up a hand. Kate fell silent. I told you when all this started that you needed to let the system work, Montgomery said. I warned you that it could take months. I know that patience is a problem for you. Always has been. You come by it honestly. But I need you to trust me on this. I need you to commit to the process. His eyes glinted in the dim light. Because I'm not going to be the one who sent Lisa's girl back out there before she was ready. Kate lowered her head and nodded. There didn't seem to be anything else to say. Montgomery rose to his feet and picked up his coffee. Take whatever time you need, and call your parents. Okay, Kate murmured. The captain left without another word. The spot that Lyle Delane called home would not have inspired envy from very many people. A single room in a dingy, street-level boarding house, it was furnished with a few cupboards, a sink, a mini-fridge, An old twin sized bed, and a closet. That was all, though Lyle had been able to scrounge a working microwave, a hot plate, and a single table and chair, which improved his living conditions immensely. He shared the bathroom down the hall with six other tenants. The laundry room, when he could afford change for the machines, was a ten minute hike up the stairs to a slightly better part of the complex. Sometimes, he had to make do washing his socks and underwear in the sink. Lyle was prouder of getting that little room than he'd been of anything else in his entire life. He'd scrimped and saved for months to afford the two months' rent and security deposit that the landlord required. He'd gotten reference letters from his boss, his high school teachers, even his priest— He'd ridden his swoop around Second Skyway neighborhoods for hours with a black garbage bag slung over the back, filling it with bottles and cans he found in the recycling bins. Once, he'd made a risky sideline bet at the swoop tracks, wagering half his paycheck that he wouldn't finish last. At last, the room was his, and he'd been able to keep it, paying on time every month, for over a year now. It was more than just a place to sleep. It was independence for him, and one less body in his mother's overcrowded flat. It was freedom. Lyle parked his swoop at the curb, lowering it onto its landing skids, and then chained it to the nearby lamp post before walking up to his building's exterior entrance. An elderly catmorph woman stood watering her hostas in the planter boxes next to the steps. The little watering can was bright orange and yellow, a sharp contrast to the plain gray-and-black tabby stripes of her fur. Lyle sketched a quick bow to her as he approached. "'Morning, Mrs. Roberts,' he said. "'Good morning, Lyle, dear,' Mrs. Roberts said warmly. "'How is your shift at the factory?' "'Just fine, ma'am. Thanks for asking. Do you need any help with anything?' Green, cat-slitted eyes sparkled at him. "'Not just now, dear.' but if you'll come by in an hour, you can help me make lunch. Cheesy potato soup. Lyle's stomach rumbled. I can never say no to your cooking, ma'am. See you in an hour. All right, dear. Lyle went inside, dropped his backpack by the door, grabbed his shower basket and a towel, and went down the hall to the bathroom. His fur was grimy and greasy after a night at the factory but Mom had figured out a blend of soaps that was both affordable and reasonably effective. He stood, scrubbed, and soaked until the water went cold, then toweled off and went back to his room. Lyle didn't have a television, but he never felt like he was missing much. He grabbed an old paperback detective novel that he'd bought from the used bookstore the other day, and spent the next half hour engrossed in the adventures of square-jawed heroes and sexy femme fatales, He didn't always know all the words they used, but he had a dog-eared dictionary that he kept close to hand, and his vocabulary grew with every book he read. When it was time, he pulled on clean clothes and went down the hall to Mrs. Roberts' room. He knocked three times and waited. There was no response. Lyle frowned. He knocked again, louder. Maybe she fell asleep. Mrs. Roberts, he called. Still no answer. Lyle went back to his room and opened the junk drawer on the far left. Underneath boxes of paper clips and piles of rubber bands, there was a single brass key, very much like his own. It hung on a keychain in the shape of a smiling cat. He took the spare key back to Mrs. Roberts' room. He slipped it into the lock and turned, but felt no resistance. The door was already unlocked. Feeling increasingly uneasy, Lyle opened the door and went inside. The room was much like his own, though slightly better furnished, with a thick quilted comforter on the bed and lace curtains on the single window. On the counter sat a pair of grocery bags, containing a large block of cheese, a bag of brown potatoes, and a bunch of assorted vegetables. A small ring of keys sat on the counter beside the shopping bags but Mrs. Roberts herself was nowhere to be found. Lyle went back out to the front steps. Mrs. Roberts, he called. Mrs. Roberts was not in front of the building. Lyle walked down the steps to the sidewalk, looked one way, then the other. There was nothing. Nothing except an orange and yellow watering can lying on the sidewalk in a slowly spreading pool of water. And that's the end of Chapter 4. Come back next week for Chapter 5, when Kate discusses her career options with John, and Will meets up with his girlfriend, the runner, Callie Linder. Alan W. Watts said... Stop aspiring and start writing. If you're writing, you're a writer. Write like you're a goddamn death row inmate and the governor is out of the country and there's no chance for a pardon. Write like you're clinging to the edge of a cliff, white knuckles, on your last breath, and you've got just one last thing to say, like you're a bird flying over us and you can see everything, and please, for God's sake, tell us something that will save us from ourselves." Take a deep breath, and tell us your deepest, darkest secret, so we can wipe our brow and know that we're not alone. Well, what can I say to advice like that? Let's just get cracking. Here's the weekly writing report. I wrote 3,174 words this week, over the course of 4.5 hours for an average writing speed of 705 words per hour. I wrote on five out of seven days this week. This week I continued working on the outline for None Shall Dwell Within. I had a couple of key breakthroughs in planning out the story. There's a bit of writing advice that I picked up from Jim Butcher, the author of The Dresden Files. He said to plan your story around a big middle— a major fight or struggle that puts all the pieces into place and sets things up for the finale. I've tried to incorporate that advice into each of my Metamore City books. In Making the Cut, the Big Middle is the raid on Viscount Security Services, and in Things Unseen, it's when Kate and David are ambushed by the Vampire Syndicate. This week, I figured out what the Big Middle is going to be for this story, and I think it's going to be a good one. Looking back at the month of March, I wrote a total of 7,043 words in 14 days, averaging 503 words per day. I spent 11 hours writing last month. Compared to February, my word count increased by 108%, and my writing time increased by 110%. March was still my sixth least productive month since I started this podcast, but considering that I didn't do any writing at all until the 14th, I think I did a pretty good job of pulling myself back into a regular rhythm. I'm looking forward to much better numbers for the month of April. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, 82 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester, the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018,